Andrew Watt is a PhD candidate at the Molecular Science and Biotechnology Institute, Bio21, and is also the Neuroscience and Medicine Editor for ScienceSeq.org. To you, Andrew. Hello. <laughs> How are you all? So the mammalian brain is the most magnificent achievement of biological evolution. Before it, all ac human accomplishments, space travel, sophisticated computers, unraveling of the atomic and molecular structure, are humbled. That was a quote from Dr. Robert Joseph White. Now, it's pretty hard to argue with the notion that the human brain is the single most magnificent achievement of biological evolution. After all, all of the scientific and technological advancements that we've made as a species, well, we have our brains to thank for those. From the planes to the phones, the pills to the pillows, from the writings of Plato, to the art of Picasso, to the music of Peter Andre. <laughs> All of human accomplishment can be put down to the electrical excitability of a gelatinous pile of neurons tucked safely inside our skulls. However, at some point in history, our brains became self-aware and began to realize their importance to human survival. They began to write thinly veiled quotes regarding their importance on an evolutionary scale. And in a fit of daring, they invented the field of neuroscience. A career where they could spend an entire lifetime, lifetime studying the thing that fascinated them the most, themselves. <laughs> and so it is that I introduce you to perhaps the most narcissistic brain of them all. A brain who has received both Nobel nominations and threats to its life. A brain who ironically nicknamed itself Humble Bob. But who we shall know from here, this point in, as the neurologist and neurosurgeon, Dr. Robert J. White. So our tale begins on January 21st, 1926, as an unseasonably cold winter, a cold winter's night closed over the quiet harbour town of Duluth, Minnesota, Robert J. White quietly snuck into the world. He was raised a devout Catholic by his mother and an aunt, and in many ways he was an ordinary boy. His father was in military service and so was away for the best part of his childhood, though. But as he grew, it became clear to all who knew him that White was not quite like the other boys. Rather, he was the type of child that one might describe as being exceedingly arrogant or irritatingly intelligent. And so it came as no surprise to anyone when he graduated as valedictorian for Dallas, from Dallas Sale High School. However, despite having the obvious aptitude for academia, he spurned the path to college and instead opted to follow in his father's footsteps and enter military service himself. It was here that White first whet his appetite for the field of medicine, training as a medical laboratory technician before serving two years in the South Pacific. That's the war, not the musical about the war. <laughs> During his time in the military, White's fascination with the human body continued to increase, and he eventually decided to leave the service at the age of 19 and pursue an education in medicine and neurosurgery. This was a journey which would, took, which would take him over a decade, but ended up netting him a Bachelor of Science from the University of St. Thomas, a medical doctorate from Harvard, and a PhD in neurosurgery from the University of Minnesota. It was during this training that White became increasingly fascinated by the intricacies of the human brain, and noted with excitement the role that inducible hypothermia, or the inducement of lower temperatures, was beginning to play in neurosurgical procedures. Now, the idea of therapeutic hypothermia as a cooling treatment was by no means a novel idea. In fact, during the Napoleonic Wars, uh, medics and soldiers had noted that soldiers who fell in the snow often fared much better than those that were brought in closer to the fires. 
Since the middle of the 50s, cardiac surgeons had been packing ice around the bodies of their patients to try and increase the rate of survival from the surgeries. Now, the reason for the success of these treatments is fairly simple. The metabolic demand of an organ, whether it be a, a heart, a liver, or a brain, is slowed significantly as temperatures decrease. Lower metabolism means less demand for oxygen. Thus, blood flow can be slowed or even stopped to make the life of the surgeon that little bit easier. But why noted that the techniques used at the time seemed to be falling into one of two categories. The first category was that the techniques were incredibly rudimentary and there was only limited cooling of the organ. So the first technique literally involved wrapping the patients up in ice blankets and then noting that the fact that the nasal temperature dropped from 37 degrees to 30 degrees. The second category, on the other hand, was unnecessarily complicated, but it did result in great cooling. This technique involved a pre-neurosurgery heart surgery, where the surgeon would make two incisions into the heart, one on the left and the right-hand side, so the blood could be bypassed through a heat exchanger before being reintroduced into the pulmonary and femoral arteries. As you can understand, somewhat invasive. Uh, <laughs> did significantly decrease temperatures from 37 to around about 12 degrees. So hats off to them on that count. Sadly, about 70% of the patients died either on the operating table during the cardiac surgery or the following neurosurgery, or in the six hours directly following all of the surgeries. So White, like many of you, no doubt in the room, uh, noted that perhaps inserting tubes into a patient's heart moment before operating on their brain is perhaps a touch unnecessary. And so he set out to develop a method of cooling the brain in a somewhat less invasive manner. And of course, because he found himself in the heady heydays of the 1960s when a budding young neurosurgeon needn't bother themselves with those pesky considerational animal ethics, <laughs> he set about researching his methods on a troop of monkeys. So White's idea was fairly simple. Why cut into the heart of the monkey when you could just pop one end of a tube in its thigh, reroute the oxygenated blood from its femoral artery through an external heat exchanger, and then pop the other end straight back into its neck? And there you have it, whammo, refrigerated monkey brain. <laughs> and so that's exactly what he did. And he did so very successfully. In fact, he was able to reduce the temperature of the monkey's brain to between 5 and 10 degrees Celsius, much better than the heart surgery pre-neurosurgery. In fact, White's experiment was so successful that it was able to completely block off the entire blood supply to the monkey's brain for more than 30 minutes before restoring the blood flow and leaving the monkey's brain entirely intact not to mention neurologically normal. So soon after this, White's, uh, this work, White's technique, uh, known as autocerebral hypothermic perfusion, for those of you playing along, was successfully administered to human patients. And similar techniques along these lines are still actually used to this day in neurosurgery. However, White became fascinated with another aspect of his experiment, the ability to remove the brain's blood flow, its entire blood supply for extended periods of time, and then to reanimate it with no adverse effects. You see, over the years, the knowledge of his, uh, his knowledge of the intricate workings of the human brain had intertwined with his staunch Catholic upbringing, leading him to view the brain as the repository of the human soul. And he'd seen far too many patients with healthy brains die as a result of their failing bodies. Finally, White saw a way forward, a way to keep those souls alive. And so he went to work once more cooling a monkey's brain down until it went into that dormant state. Except this time, instead of reanimating the monkey's mind, he removed it. 
and placed the cooled brain onto a scaffold on his bench. Once again, the blood supply was reintroduced to the brain, this time via a series of tubes and pumps, and a beaker below to catch the inevitable drips. And to the amazement of everyone in the lab, the brain came back to life. The EEG attachments to the brain signaled electrical signals consistent with those of a normal head-encapsulated brain. But there was a problem, other, of course, than the glaring issues <laughs> with basic animal welfare. <laughs> the isolated brain had only survived for a matter of minutes. And the main issue, it turned out, was the blood. It was coagulating in the mechanical system. It was coagulating too fast. So humble Bob decided that he needed fresher blood. And so the next time, when the cooled brain on the bench was ready to be reanimated, he hooked it up to a blood supply of a living and no doubt terrified monkey's thigh, just as he'd done earlier. This experiment not only allowed him <laughs> to have a ready supply of fresh blood for his brain on the bench, but it also enabled him to directly compare the electrical activity of the two brains simultaneously. And apart from the obvious increase in activity that can be observed in a monkey's brain as it looks at its friend's brain on a bench being kept alive by the tubes connected to its own thigh, uh, the, signals, the signal patterns were relatively similar. But still, White wasn't satisfied. After all, how could he really know that the electrical readouts from the EEG meant that the brain on the bench was really alive? It's not like he could ask it to fill in a survey or ask, answer questions. He noted, that's when I had to go back to the drawing board and figure out an operative preparation in which I could maintain the brain inside of the skull and inside of the head and transplant it in such a way that I could determine whether it was awake and whether it was functioning. And so this time, rather than just removing the, the brain, White removed the monkey's entire head and sewed it onto the headless body of another monkey he'd prepared earlier. Or to quote the man himself, we took the, head, we took the B head off and uh, then we took the A head and sewed it onto the B head. Ah, uh, the B body, rather. Simple, really. <laughs> All that was left to do was to wait for the anesthesia to wear off. And as the brain of Monkey A was slowly roused by the blood of Monkey B, it was clear that White's monster was alive. The animal started to look at me, started to blink, and to follow me with its eyes. And in what remains one of the greatest understatements of last century, Bob noted that he could tell it wasn't a very happy creature, <laughs> as it tried to bite my finger. <laughs> That's right. Just when you thought that old humble Bob couldn't get any more barbaric, know that having just witnessed his Frankensteinian monkey creation wake from its slumber and begin to contemplate the macabre and surreal situation that it now found itself in, Bob made the decision to poke it in the face. <laughs> I mean, come on, at least give it a minute to get its head around everything. <laughs> now, White's first attempt at whole body transplantation, as he called it, survived for a mere four hours. However, by the time his experiments were stopped in the early 70s, his creations were surviving for upwards of three days. And why was left with the assumption that if you could do this with an animal brain, surely you could do it for a human brain. In fact, he went so far as to predict that what has always been the stuff of science fiction, the Frankenstein legend, in which an entire human being is constructed by sewing various body parts together, will become a clinical reality in the 21st century. Our modern-day version of the tale will include the transportation of the human brain, but the brain cannot function properly without the plumbing of the body and the wiring of the head. <laughs> Don't be silly. So brain transplantation, at least initially, will require head transplantation, or body transplantation, at least initially. 
Now, it's important to note that White wasn't the only one who was keen to see whether his work was transferable to humans. In the late 1970s, the Soviet Union offered to make arrangements for White to come across and perform the surgeries in the USSR. But in the end, sadly for White, they were unable to raise the necessary monetary requirements to make this a reality. And even if they had been able to raise them, uh, the lingering issue of reconnecting the spinal cord was something that continued to elude White up until his death in 2010. Now, it's probably also important to note that uh, viewing White purely as a villain, villain rather, a villain, hmm, is not as easy as you might think. Although it's fair to say that for many of us, he's certainly no great hero. His work did, though, stem from a desire to help others. Those individuals whose brains were alive but whose bodies were failing them. Quadriplegics often prematurely die of multiple organ failure, White said. If we could transfer the healthy body of a donor, such as a brain-dead individual or someone who's just died of a brain disease, to the healthy head of a quadriplegic, they could prolong the patient's life. Brain-dead patients, after all, already serve as multiple organ donors, so a whole body transplant is not necessarily as macabre as it might at first sound. In fact, even in the months leading up to his death in, in 2010, White was steadfast in his beliefs that his procedure was an operation of the future. It's certainly out there, sure. And under the circumstances of, of quadriplegia, the concept of giving somebody who is important, or quite young, those were the only two conditions that he placed upon the operation. Uh, I'm sorry, you're a bit old and a only a little important, so you're going to have to die. It's, it's not beyond comprehension. Keep in mind we're still just within the first century of transplantation surgeries. Who knows what will happen in the next 100 years? In a sad state of irony, or perhaps fortunately, depending on which way you look at the story, White didn't have to wait 100 years. He only needed to hold out for three more years. As earlier this year, his vision reached at least a theoretical reality. An Italian neurosurgeon by the name of Dr. Sergio Canavero reported that only now do we have the technological capacity to reconnect a donor's and a recipient's spinal cord. All he's waiting for is the $13 million needed for the operation. Thank you.